Hey, good morning, Watermark. Um, we're here again, another Sunday morning, services at home. Um, in the next few weeks, I know we've been paying attention to all the COVID tracking data just like you. And instead of going one way, things are going the other way. So, um, uh, yeah, uh, it's, everything's kind of out of our control. Um, I did want to say in a few weeks, probably three weeks or so, maybe two or three weeks, um, we are going to start um, sort of experimenting with live streaming uh, from the church. So things may start to look a little different here and there because we want to get all that set up. My dog's barking. So that, reaching from home, so that when we actually do go live, uh, it's seamless. And so we're going to start experimenting with that, uh, maybe recording some some uh, sermons and worship sets at the church and then start posting them on Sunday morning in preparation for one day when we do go live. So um, slowly start, you'll slowly start seeing things change over the, over, over July. And uh, as we move in the direction um, that we ultimately want to be in um, for now, we're going to continue right here this way. Um, we are in Acts chapter nine, verses 19 through 31. I'll read this to you. And then we'll talk about this for a little while, shall we? Let's, uh, let's, let's read this. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoner to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. And day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through, the, through an opening in the wall. Um, and when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were, they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the, Lord, uh, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. Okay, Paul's conversion experience. That was, that's what we're talking about today. And I want to see what we can learn from this conversion experience. Um, I think there's some important things that you should see about your own journey, about deconstruction, about how things, um, how people grow and change. All right, let's pray and then we'll jump into this. Let's pray. Father, I lift up everybody gathering here with us um, today, wherever they are in the world, uh, wherever they're listening from. I pray that somehow you would allow us and help us to be one people with one heart, one mind, one kingdom, um, one nation living within these earthly nations and speaking into them. I ask that you would guide us this morning, that you would teach us about how conversion works, what it is, um, what Saul was, was experiencing and how it sort of uh, can be mirrored in our life. Um, encourage us wherever we are on the journey towards you. Allow us to be a part of each other's journeys and to pull each other towards you. 
as we, uh, as we attempt to exercise your kingdom in this world. In your name, amen. Okay. All right. Paul's conversion is, uh, it's usually thought of as this like instant thing. Paul has this experience. He sees Jesus and suddenly he gets it and he runs around and all this miraculous stuff is downloaded into his brain. And he starts running around preaching the gospel. Um, that tends to be sort of how we picture it, that suddenly he's a Christian. He's no longer a Jew, but he's a Christian. Um, that's not an accurate way to view this. I want to talk about this this morning. Um, it was actually very different than that. The experience that Paul had on the road to Damascus, what happened was he, upon meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, upon this vision that he had, upon this experience that he had, something broke his current model of God. He received a piece of information and it was like a wrench being shoved into the gears of his theology, which had always been moving and, and pulling him forward. And suddenly it's like, he had this experience that gave him a little piece of information. And this little piece of information broke his theology. What was this little piece of information? It was the fact that there was a human sitting on the throne of the cosmos and that it was Jesus of Nazareth. The idea of the human sitting on the cosmos, on the throne of the cosmos, is not new. Uh, Ezekiel, uh, Elijah, Daniel, um, the, the, the son of man, all the, the idea that some, that, that there's this mysterious human figure ruling over all of the nations is not this new thing in Judaism. It's something that they were looking forward to. They pictured a Davidic King though. They never pictured God, but what they now have, what Paul is given is that there is this throne over the entirety of the cosmos and that there's a human sitting on it and it's the face of Jesus. Uh, the one who was the leader of the people he had been persecuting. This piece of information crammed up the gears. They no longer functioned. Nothing worked anymore. And with that, uh, he's, he, he goes into this crisis because his theology no longer works. And he doesn't know what to do with it. And it's a problem. And so before it could become sort of the center of his life, it first has to become this huge disruption that causes a bit of a crisis that he has to work through. Let me get rid of my, my keyboard here. I'll put it over here. Um, and so what's happening here is we need to reframe Paul's conversion, first off. Um, Paul's conversion was not a conversion from, from one religion to another. We have to stop thinking of it like this. It was not a conversion from Judaism to Christianity, okay? Um, we have to change our thinking on this. His conversion was this pivot in, in thinking for him as a theologian. His conversion... Uh, con yeah, his conversion was a, a theological piece that acted like a, uh, like a, like a fulcrum, right? Like a, like a hinge that tilted his entire theology a different direction. It was like this, and he got a piece of information, and the whole thing kind of shifted, and he suddenly looked at everything upside down. Everything was different. Everything was backwards, right? Um, so we can only speak of Paul's conversion experience as not from Judaism to Christianity, but from one sect of Judaism to another sect of Judaism, uh, from, let's just say from Pharisee to like Nazarene, okay? That's how we can talk about Paul's conversion experience. He didn't come from one religion to another. He considered himself um, a, a Jew and an Israelite till the end of his life. Uh, and all these early Christians were. They, were. they were Jewish Christians. They were considered for a long time a, uh, a sect of Judaism and eventually, um, the Jews kind of separated from them, right? Um, so Paul's conversion must be seen as sort of a hinge or a fulcrum 
point that sort of turns his entire theology around. And there were only really a couple of basic ideas that penetrated his belief system that caused him to look at everything differently. And oftentimes that's all you need, right? To cause a faith crisis. One piece of information inserted in. One passing careless sentence. Um, one like chapter paragraph or line in a book that sticks out of you and grabs you and changes everything about how you, how you think about the Bible, about the word of God, about God, about the universe, right? This has happened to all of us. And if it hasn't yet, it will. Okay. So let's look. Um, I want to look at Paul's experience. I want to look at his timeline because Paul has this mystical experience. It happens in, in 34 AD. Okay. And his ministry to the Gentiles actually didn't start until about 47 AD. And people don't think about this. And so we have at least 10 years, probably 13 years went by before Paul went off on his missionary journeys. Um, and so we have questions about, well, what was Paul doing for those 13 years? We sometimes think that God sort of just uploaded Christianity into his brain. Didn't work that way. Nothing works that way. The Bible wasn't written that way either. Um, Paul spent a long time working out his theology, but it wasn't what he did at first, okay? Uh, I want to point out, Luke has Paul going straight to Damascus, and there's some discrepancy here because G Paul's own writings, like in the book of Galatians, chapter one, it gives us a little bit more information, a little bit of detail that Luke leaves out for whatever reason. Probably, I would say Luke probably left out this information because it wasn't pertinent to the story, and he, he was limited on scroll space. We're not limited today on scroll space. We don't have to think about these kinds of things. They did. Um, and so Galatians, in chapter one, it tells us that Paul went to Arabia for some reason. Like he, he had this experience and he goes straight off to Arabia. And you're like, why did he go to Arabia? What's in Arabia? Well, it's a great question. I'm glad you just asked that question. Galatians 4.25 actually points out, Paul says in his own words, that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. And so this is obviously what's on his mind. It's kind of a holy pilgrimage. He has this experience with God. God speaks to him. And where are you going to go once God speaks to you? Where do all the prophets go? They, they tend to, a lot of them tend to have a pilgrimage to Sinai. This is where Elijah went. Um, and I imagine he's thinking of himself like Elijah, because Elijah at one point even has a prophecy, uh, a prophecy about how God would open the door, kick the doors open one day for the Gentiles to be brought in. And so Paul has this experience and he's, and he's, and he's like, what do I do with this experience? I want to hear from more from God. Where am I going to go? I'm going to go to Sinai. So he goes to Arabia where Sinai is. And what happened to Elijah? Well, he got there, he sat in the cave, um, right for a while. And then there's like this tornado and this earthquake and like lightning and stuff. All this crazy stuff is happening and he's waiting to hear God and all these things. And God isn't in any of these things, but finally he gets called out of the cave and there's a still small voice that speaks to him, right? Perhaps Paul is in that cave. Perhaps Paul is spending a few days, weeks there and, and trying to meditate and think and, and, and get a message from God because he no longer knows how to think about God. Everything is broken. And sometimes when you have a faith crisis, you just want to get away, okay? Um, and so that's what he did. Uh, but he did, after this, go back to Damascus. And uh, this is sort of where we pick up on Luke, if we're, we're sort of guessing how the time frame went. Um, and so he goes back to Damascus, and the first thing he does is he goes into the synagogues, and he starts preaching that the Gentiles should be included in the church, and that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. Jesus is on the throne. Uh, this is a problem. Uh, not just for the 
Jewish leaders, but also for the Christians. Everybody's confused. It doesn't go well. Um, he starts telling them the Gentiles are included. It goes really bad. They threaten to kill him, uh, and he's running for his life. He goes to Jerusalem so that he can meet with the apostles. And this whole time, he's interacting with Christians, and Christians are teaching him. Like, Paul has to submit to these Christians, and these Christians are teaching him. And they're teaching him, like, all through his writings, he has little creeds and stuff that he adds in. He learned these from the Christians. Um, and uh, so they already had, like, this theological system that they had pretty quickly. And he's learning these things. He's learning their doctrine. He's learning how to read the ancient scriptures through the lens of Jesus now. He goes to Jerusalem then. He meets with the, the apostles. And while he's there, he learns about a plot to kill him. And so now uh, he's in trouble because he keeps preaching and everyone's afraid. Everyone's mad. Not only are the, the Jews upset with him, but the Christians are afraid of him. The Christians aren't sure if they should let him in. Um, and there's one Christian in particular named Barnabas. We're going to talk about him. But they're terrified of Paul. They're like, he came here to kill us. Um, this is what he has always done. So his, his zeal, his like, you, you know when you learn a new thing and you change your mind on something and suddenly you become an advocate for that thing and you start blasting it everywhere. Um, this is what he did. That rarely goes well. You'll get a lot of pushback. Not that it's a bad thing to do. Honestly, if it's the right thing to do, sometimes it's the right thing to do. But Paul is doing this, and he's having a really hard time with the response. Um, it's not going well. Either the Jews or the Christians are, are receiving him. Um, and eventually, Barnabas talks him into it, and, and the Christians receive him. And so what happens is he begins to rethink how he's doing his ministry, and the Christians sort of meet with him and be like, hey, we're going to send you away for a while. This is what happens. They, uh, they send him away. They send him back home to Tarsus, where he's from. And so he goes to Tarsus and he flees. And likely the whole trip to Tarsus, he's like, what even is this? Like, what is this life that I'm being called to? I, nothing makes any sense. None of this. Uh, I, I don't know what God wants of me. And he's trying to figure this stuff out. And he spends time in, in, in prayer and meditation. He goes back to Tarsus. He gets a job. <laughs> he like drops out of the ministry gets a job as a tent maker. He learns how to make tents. Um, and he chooses this job specifically because it's a, uh, um, a, a low honor job. We're going to, we talked about that before. We're going to talk about it again. Um, so he goes back home and he gets a job. Um, and he spends his days a, a, about a decade. He just spends his days working, thinking and praying and deconstructing and reconstructing. He probably goes down to the synagogue daily to hear the scriptures sang and recited. And he recites along with them. And he begins to see Jesus throughout the whole thing. And he's constantly trying to make sense of the experience that he had and this new information. And he's, he's having to rebuild his faith around this little bit of information, this fulcrum, this hinge that he had received. All right. So... In the middle of all this, he's rebuilding his theology, and he develops this theology. And he would later write about the theology that he had developed. He, he writes it to the Romans. He writes it to the Galatians and the Corinthians. He writes from the church in Corinth to the church in Rome about he knows and understands all the problems that it's going to cause when the Gentiles come into the church. And so he has a lot of thinking to do, and he does, and he does the work. And he studies and he prays. 
And then he comes back into the ministry much later. Okay. Um, that's what Paul is doing in this big gap time. A lot of people don't even realize there's a huge gap, but there is. And Paul needed this time to think through everything, to make it all fit, to make it all work. Um, I want to point out to you uh, verse 26 and 27, because there's this shift in like, Paul does two things. The first thing he does is he runs around being zealous and preaching at everybody. And then there's this shift where he goes and spends time preparing himself so that he can re-enter into the ministry again in a whole new way. That shift comes from because of a man named Barnabas. I mean, without Barnabas, this whole thing would have fallen apart. This thing never would have, not, would, have, would have never gotten off the ground. Paul likely would have just deconstructed and just gone to nothing, right? But look at verse 26 and 27. It says this, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him in and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Now, in this huge story, there's two important factors that Paul, uh, that brought Paul into his true self. Um, and I want you to see these because it's possible that you need to find these in your life, okay? Um, and the two things, it's very simple, and we're going to talk about them, friends and time. Um, without these two things, friends and time, without these two things, Paul likely would have just continued to, to zealously careen through the synagogues, the Christian households, and never matured into what he was supposed to be, all right? Um, Barnabas was this respected sort of elder in the church, a longtime member of the community. Everyone looked up to him. Everyone trusted him. He obviously held sway and weight in the community. And Barnabas steps up for Paul. And Barnabas comes up beside Paul and speaks for him. He's an advocate for him. And he encourages him. And he brings him to the church and says, look, guys, God is doing something, and whatever God is doing, he is doing it through this guy, and we need to make this uh, a priority to pour into him, to accept him, okay? Now, new leaders, I want you to hear this, new leaders always need the support of an older and more experienced member of the community if they are to do anything at all. I want to point this out in my own life. Right around 2007, I was, I was working as the associate pastor uh, and, and the youth pastor of the original church plant that came out of uh, this church. Um, and it, the church was called Watermark Community Church. It, it started in New Tampa. Um, and in 2007, the pastor left, and there was all kinds of turmoil over, over how we were to proceed, over how in the world we were going to move forward. And while we were trying to figure this out, um, I began to preach every week. Um, I had a degree in religion, and I, I began to, to to preach every week through the book of Acts, actually, ironically, um, so that we could figure out how to be a church and figure out what the church was doing. And there was this man, he was an elder in the church. Um, most of the elders had left, and there was this man uh, named John Savio. And uh, John was an amazing guy. Um, he was there when I got hired into the church. Um, and he may have been one of the people that hired me into the church and he was the only elder to stick around during these really hard times. It was, it was a really hard time. Um, but I was 26 years old 
And he sat my 26-year-old self down when I didn't even really want the job, when I didn't know what I was doing. And I just, I just loved the community and I wanted to keep it together somehow. And he sat me down and he looked at me and he said, he said, hey, Tommy, you should leave these people. You know them, you love them, you know what they need. You are the one to take this church forward. You have my support and I am with you. And then he went to the other elders, the ones who were left, who hadn't left. And he told them the same thing, that he thinks I should be the pastor. And then he went to some people in the church and he told them the same thing. Um, not only that, he, he would go around meeting with people, telling them um, that they should, for some reason, trust and support me and that they should stick around, that they shouldn't leave. And it was this incredible thing that this man did for me. Um, and he continued to be an elder after I became a pastor and he would give me books and help me read stuff and understand um, my role in the community. Uh, in 2012, after we bought the building that we are in, um, he died and we held his funeral uh, at the building that we had recently purchased. And the place was packed. The place was full. Everybody loved him. From every, people came from everywhere to talk about the amazing encouragement and, and, and experiences they had with, with John Savio in their life. And, and uh, the reason I want you to know this is because he was my Barnabas. And if you are a part of this community and it has blessed you in any way, and if you have made friends and if your life has been changed, and if you've met your spouse, and if you've launched a new career, if you have reformed your faith, if you've found Jesus, if, if you have made life changes and found healing in our church, the only reason any of that has happened is because of John Savio, because there was a man who was my Barnabas, who looked me in the eye and said, hey, this is you, you should do this, and went to them and said, you you guys should you guys should follow him and it didn't make any sense to me but looking back that was his role in our community all of this is th that you have experienced from this church some of you have children because you met your spouse at watermark you have a family and Watermark wouldn't have existed without this man. He was my Barnabas. Um, because he looked at everyone and said, let's give him a chance. You guys, the Barnabas is just as important, if not more important than the actual leader. There is no such thing as a lone leader. There's not. The most important part of, of the leader, in fact, what makes them a leader at all, is the fact that there is a single first follower, the first person who believes in them. That was Barnabas for Paul. That was John for me. They, they believe even before anyone else does. They're in tune with the spirit. They know what God is doing. They can see it before everyone else. Look for that person. Listen to that person. Pay attention to that person. We still need men and women today who will walk alongside new and immature believers, who we all know aren't ready to lead yet, right? But we need people to walk with them to teach them what they're doing. We also need young leaders who understand that they cannot do this without a Barnabas at their side. You can't do it. Don't try.
you will shipwreck something. You will break stuff. Do not push the experienced elder away that's in your life speaking to you. Sit at their feet, gain their wisdom, listen to their stories. They've walked down paths that you haven't walked down. And if you are a mature follower of Jesus, if you've been down that road for a while, you don't have to be a formal leader in the church to be one of these Barnabases. You don't have to. Um, look for the leaders of the future and speak into their life. That's the greatest ministry you could, you could probably have in our church. So friends and time. Time. Let's talk about time. Um, new ideas need an incubation period. It's a weird thing to say, um, but they do. And they did for Paul. And they did for the disciples. Minimum three years for the disciples, right? Paul, 10 to 13 years. New ideas need an incubation period. They must sit. They must stew, right? They must be held. They must be stress tested. They must be understood from different angles. When I was in my early pastoral years, in my 20s, when John was still in the church, um, before he died, I, I noticed every two or three years, I would receive one of these hinges from God, one of these fulcrums. Somebody would throw a wrench into my gears and lock them up. Every two or three years without fail, something big would break in my faith that would cause a crisis of some sort. The same thing that Paul experienced. It would be from a book, an encounter, a thought, <laughs> um, from meeting someone on the other side of an issue and having an honest conversation with them. Um, it's going to happen. And I would see that every two or three years, something would shift in this way. Either maybe, I mean, I remember some big ones were my shift in, in readings of Genesis 1 and 2, when I realized that there need not be a fight between the scientists and the Christians, that perhaps the Christians uh, are trying to read it like scientists, and perhaps we should read it like Christians. Um, and uh, Revelation as well. It's a big one, right? And also the understanding of like the kingdom of God is not of this earth. And my rethinking of like the place of nationalism in the church, which it doesn't have a place. Um, and all of these things, every time I would come to the nonviolence, all these things would, would throw a wrench in my, in, in my theological construct. And there were other voices in the church, in, in church history that I would read. And then I would say, how is it? that they can look at things this way. And I began to look at this way and things would lock up and I would need to deconstruct some things and change over and over and over. This is part of the journey. If you aren't changing, you aren't growing. Um, and I would actually warn you, be, be wary of, of pastors who believe and teach the exact same thing that they believe and taught 10, 15, 20 years ago, that nothing has shifted, nothing has changed. Really? You haven't read anything new. I have a problem with that. Um, I, I, uh, every time I saw this, every time this happened to me, I would like early Paul, um, I would, I would usually in my early years start off with the same reaction Paul had. I would, I would rush out and start proclaiming this new thing to the world. I was excited about it. I'd learned something new and I start proclaiming it to the world and it usually didn't go well. Most of the time it didn't. Uh, a lot of times it, it, it drove people away because they hadn't had the same journey I had. They hadn't sat with ideas that I had. Um, and sometimes these ideas were just for me. 
And sometimes they needed to be presented slowly over a long period on a journey. Um, that is the safest way to awaken people, right? A little bit at a time. You don't run in the room and go, ah, wake up. They get mad at you. <laughs> um, and that's what I was doing. Um, I remember um, in my in my late twenties, maybe early thirties, I wanted to write. Uh, I wanted to write a book, but I came to the conclusion after realizing that every couple of years I would change my mind about some particular thing, um, and I would grow and I would shift in my faith. I realized I probably shouldn't be writing any books during this time because I don't want to later have to write books against the books I already wrote. And so at some point, I looked at my wife and I said, "I don't think I should write a book until I'm forty. By the way, that's four months from now, and hopefully I'll have a book out by next summer. Um, and uh, that, that was sort of, it's sort of the journey I, I, I realized that I was on, that like growing and changing, I don't need to be so quick to carve everything into stone that I pick up. I need to sit with it. I need to test it. I need to mull it over. I need to look at what it does to my faith. I need to live it for a little bit. And this is what Paul needed to do. He became, he became a tent maker from a Pharisee, like top honor to tent maker, which I've explained many times is the lowest form of labor you could do in the first century, especially in the city of Tarsus. They're called um, a useless rabble. Um, and he chose this. Why? Because this new understanding that he had of God, supreme power, honor, ruling on on high and he gives it all up and and lives amongst the poor and oppressed people in the world if this is what god was doing and he wanted to be like god if this is what jesus did then this is what he would do too and so rather than just forming a theology around it he decided this isn't working i need to live it and so he becomes it and he stress tests his theology through experience and through life. What Paul is giving us in his writing is not a systematic theology for you to read and agree with and believe. He is giving you something to live, all right? If Jesus is poured out for the healing of the world around him, then we must be poured out. Um, the things that Jesus is doing, we must do. And so Paul decides to live his theology and he builds it through living in it. For 10 years, he builds this sense of lived theology. And that's what Paul is doing. It's, it's not, it's a lived, it's formed by the life of Christ. It has to be sat with and grown organically and slowly. I know too many people, at least in the last, in the last 15, and 20, 15 or 20 years of, of working at Watermark, um, who have some sort of conversion experience. They read something new, some new idea that grabs up the gears, right? And causes them to rethink and they change their mind about something and they respond just like Paul did and just like I did with devastating results, charging out and forcing it on everyone around them. And they deconstructed their faith and they're instantly, um, what happens is oftentimes they'll even shipwreck their lives because of this newfound zeal for this new thing that they've discovered. They'll, they'll leave their spouse, they'll devastate their friends and their church by judging all of them and lashing out at them, at their family, at their friends, at their church, because they're not as enlightened as they are now. And it's immature. You have to sit with thoughts and ideas. You have to sit with them. You have to test them. You have to read widely. Read the lives of the people. Watch the lives of the people whom you got this from. Do they look like Christ? Um, and follow, follow it through. 
Um, but what I want you to know is this, if they had a Barnabas with them and they had some time with them, with these ideas, someone to walk with them and speak to speak into their ear, to encourage them and the time to take before just launching off zealously into the world. <clears throat> these people that I know that shipwrecked their lives, they could have changed the world. And I know so many of them. I know so many of them. They needed a pair of ears to give them an ear and not to shut them down. You can't shut people down when they're, when they're rethinking things. You can't. You have to join them. Uh, they needed a space to practice, practically test their theology, uh, to live it out, to see if God is in it or if it's just them or if it's just something they want, if they're just like acting out of sort of some kind of like rebellious moment in their life, which is normal. Um, and if you give them that, if you give people the time and the space and you walk with them and you enter into that with them and see the potential in them, the spirit will join both of you and lead you both into this next place that God has for you to go. You cannot be scared of people's journeys, people's faith journeys. You can't. I've learned years ago, don't be scared of people's faith journeys. Don't be scared of your own faith journey. The path to true discipleship, and pay attention to this, and listen to what I'm saying, not what I'm not saying. The path to true discipleship oftentimes leads directly through heresy before it comes out the other side. Try to, I, I try to help people remember this. Um, I get emails, so-and-so is saying this. Yeah, they're deconstructing their faith, and, they're, and they're, they heard something new, and, and they're thinking about it. And I think if, if they sit with it long enough, they're going to see that it doesn't fit. And I think they'll throw it out again. You know what? If nobody shuns them and shuts them down, they do. They become far more orthodox than they ever were before their deconstruction. I am. Um, when you are making your faith your own, or when you are watching someone else do the same, they will push the boundaries. They will push the boundaries, always. They will attempt to smash the things that they have long stood firm in their lives. And the reason they're going to do this is because they're going to say, if it's so easy to smash, then maybe it doesn't belong. And so they're going to take a sledgehammer to some very important ideas in Christianity. And that's okay. Because I believe that they, these things will stand. And that they will eventually look at them and pick them back up and put them back where they belong. But they will now see them differently. Right? They will try on new ideas that seem awful to you. But if you cut them off when they're doing this, if you chastise them, you will never experience the beautiful new thing that they could become. And neither will they. It's not the right path. I have found that some of the most amazing and Christ-like people that have ever come through our church and into Watermark, some of the most amazing people that have ever served with us and are still in our church, they came to us after they were kicked out of their church for asking the wrong question. And they were shut down. And now we have gained incredible leaders in them. Like, the spirit is in the journey. God is leading people. You have to believe that God is active and present in all of it. That it's, they're not trying to be selfish. They're not trying to be rebellious. They're trying to find truth. And if they're seeking truth, God is in that. God will reveal it to them. And God wants you to walk with them. And God wants to use you in that journey. The Spirit of God is, is doing its thing. And the last thing I, I kind of want to highlight is that 
is that yes, um, <clears throat> immature people make awkward mistakes, really awkward mistakes, and they will. Immature people make awkward mistakes. For you older people who have walked down the path of Christ for years, for decades even, don't look down on others uh, because of a, a lack of character that they currently have. Don't shut them down. Neither impatience nor criticism is helpful in their journey. They need your patience. They need your encouragement. Do you know what encouragement is? When Paul says, if there is any encouragement. But you know what that word is? That word is, is paramithion. Okay, that's two words put together. Para is where we get a word for pair. It's two. It's two things side by side. To come along somebody, paramithion. And mythion is where we get a word for myth. It's to tell a story. And so paramithion, in the word we translate as encouragement, means to come alongside somebody and to tell them the story, your story, someone else's story. Tell them a story of someone that was on the same path and how it ended beautifully. That's what they need. They need to hear the story of Paul. They need to hear the story of the early church. They need to hear the story of you. They need to hear my story. We need to be doing this. You cannot just back away from people, especially in a faith crisis. Whenever I see people in a faith crisis, I tend to look at them and think, oh, I wonder if God's building a pastor right now. I wonder if that's what's happening. They think, they think they're moving towards agnosticism. I think they're moving towards the ministry. God is taking them on a journey. Okay? Stick with people. See it through. You need friends. You need time. One last thing. Do you know what Barnabas means, the name Barnabas? It literally means son of encouragement. I don't know what to do with that, but I think that's amazing. It's perfect. He fits the bill. Um, he earned that for sure. With that, again, no segue. We're going to go into a, a time of communion. I have communion elements. Um, my problem this week is that I ran out of red wine, so we're working with the white. <laughs> I'm, ready to, I'm ready to come back as a church. Um, there's two elements in communion. We do this every time we come together in real life or virtually. There is bread. And there is wine. The bread symbolizes the body of Christ broken for you. The wine symbolizes the blood of Christ poured out for you. Um, this is how God's salvation entered into the world. This is how the world is made whole again. This is what God is doing in the world right here. Body broken, blood poured out for healing, for salvation, for restoration of all things. So God can reconcile the whole world, all things, all people to himself. And so take your elements. And remind yourself that the body of Christ has been broken for you. The blood of Christ has been poured out for you. There is no reason to lay anyone else on that altar. This is why we have forgiveness. This is why we can find wholeness again. Take and do this in remembrance of Christ. Father, be with us this week. Go before us, follow behind us. Keep to our right hand and our left. Stay above us and below us. Be inside of us. Take us uh, exactly where you want us to go. Continue to make us whole. Fashion us into your people. I pray that in this time of separation, you would continue to draw us closer and closer and closer. I pray that not one person would be lost when we come back together. I pray that every one of my brothers and sisters would be with us. And so I pray that right now you would put somebody in our church on the hearts of those who are listening to this and who are watching this encourage them to reach out to that person and connect 
remind them that the church is still alive and here and real and that God is still working. Not in spite of all of this, but through and because of all of this. You're in control. And we submit to that. In your name, amen. Let's end with our call prayer, shall we? God, who reconciles all things to yourself, who came to dwell among us, teach us to love as you love, have loved us. May we let go of the lies embedded in us and replace them with your truth. May we, hold, may we be bold in protecting the weak, speaking for the voiceless, and standing against injustice wherever it occurs. May we recognize the Imago Dei in others, treating them with dignity and respect. Help us to forgive freely, reconciling us to each other. In a chaotic world, let us bring peace. Bring your kingdom to earth in the name of Jesus. Amen. Grace and peace, Watermark. I love every one of you. Can't wait one day to see you all again and embrace you all again. Grace and peace and go in peace.